Have you ever been anywhere where it was really dark? Think about some place that was the darkest you've ever been. I mean, so dark you can't see anything, anything at all. I remember back in the late 1980s, and uh, I always date myself when I say stuff like that. I always want to ask, how many of you were even alive in the late 1980s? But back then, I was in the Army Reserves, and I was assigned for several weeks to a basic training brigade at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And describe how big they are and how far underground they stretch. They've mapped over 350 miles of caves and passageways, and they're still not finished. Um, They haven't mapped at all. So there's these huge underground caves, these caverns, hundreds of feet underground. In order to enter them, the park rangers have strung lights along these dark, wet, narrow, twisting passageways. If you suffer from claustrophobia, you're not going to want to visit Mammoth Caves. Anyways, once we reached the bottom and uh, we got into this huge cave, and uh, it was at least the size of this room. And they had wooden benches out and asked us, everybody, sit down on the benches. And once everybody was sitting down, they turned off the lights. And it was dark, really, really dark. I mean, you couldn't see your hand if you held it right in front of your face. And one of the park rangers then moved to the middle of the cave and lit a match. The whole place lit up. And you realize you're in this gigantic cave, as I said, about the size of this auditorium, but taller. And I was struck by the fact that all of us were seeing this great big cave by the light of one tiny little match that could easily blow out. And in remembering that incident, I think, how dark our hearts must be. And yet the light of one man, Jesus Christ, is able to flood the darkness of our hearts, all of our hearts, with a light that simply cannot be put out. There are two books in the Bible that put heavy emphasis on this imagery of darkness and light. These books introduce the idea of light as a metaphor for spiritual life. And darkness is a metaphor for spiritual death. One of these books is the one we're in today, the book of the prophet Isaiah. The other is the Gospel of John, which draws actually a great deal upon Isaiah. And in the Gospel, light is used in terms of spiritual enlightenment or spiritual understanding. But it's also used as a description of both the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right away in the Gospel of John, we read chapter 1, verse 4, In him, Christ, was life, and the life was the light of men. And we learn that Jesus is not only the life, but he's also the light. And this is the claim he makes for himself in John chapter 8. He says, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. And it's Jesus himself who shines in the darkness, going back to John 1, 
verse 5, it says the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, if you go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, we read, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So we have God, through his spoken word, gave light for the physical world. And here in John 1, we read (coughs) that God, through his living word, the Lord Jesus, gives light for the spiritual world. And the power of his light exposes the darkness of our hearts, and the warmth of his light calls out to us. As King David wrote, it's going to be a long morning. King David wrote in Psalm 27, The Lord is is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? So I believe that Jesus wants us to live in him in the light, not to live away from him (coughs) in the darkness. I don't know if this is going to be enough. Excuse me. Between real cough medicine and the generic, it's the flavor. (laughs) It's the same medicine, the generic just doesn't have the flavor. I, of course, learned this the hard way. So we need to live in Christ in the light, not away from him in the darkness. John would, of course, write that again in First John. He said, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. It's the same message today. But it's hard to understand darkness without having an understanding of the light. In the same way, (coughs) it's very easy for us to take the light for granted, especially when you have no real understanding of the darkness. We're now in the season of Advent. One of the things that's really hard to understand about Advent is that Advent begins in the dark. 200-some people here today, which means there's about 200 devotees of the Lord of the Rings in this congregation. So let me use an illustration. If you've seen the third movie in the Lord of the Rings or read the book, The Return of the King, then you'll be very familiar with this concept of darkness and light. The fictional world, and I need to remind one or two of you that it is a fictional world, In the fictional world of Middle-earth, there is a sense arising in the east of the Dark Lord, Sauron, who's attempting to find the One Ring of Power. That ring forged long ago in Mount Doom, and if it ever should return to Sauron, all would be lost, and evil would rule the world, and all would become darkness. And as the story goes on, more and more of Middle-earth is being plunged into darkness. It's getting darker and darker and darker 
And you remember, of course, what's written on the ring. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them. Well, in a sense, that's the theme of this passage from Isaiah. It's about darkness, and the power of darkness, impending darkness, darkness getting deeper and deeper. He's glimpsing a world that lies in darkness. So we're going to start with the darkness of Isaiah's day. The darkness of Isaiah's day, that's the first blank uh, there in your outline. We're going to start actually backing up a couple of verses. The last verse of chapter 8. It says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former times, uh, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Some versions have Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Now, of course, every text in Scripture has a context. That's certainly true of this particular text, familiar as it is to us, not least from Christmas carols and mostly from Handel's Messiah. It's one of the great texts of the Old Testament pointing forward to the coming of Jesus as the fulfillment of that seed of promise promised in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15. But everything about the context here is dark. The closing verse of chapter 8, it's actually the first verse of the Hebrew text, but it's the closing verse of our English text in Isaiah 8. It says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. What's Isaiah talking about here? Well, Isaiah lived at a time in the 7th and 8th century B.C. There's an impending threat of the Assyrian Empire that's going to come down and ransack and destroy the northern territory of Israel with its capital city in Samaria. And that's going to happen in 721 B.C. Isaiah's writing approximately somewhere in the 730 to 735, which occurs first. Remember, B.C. counts down. And all of Isaiah chapter 8 is about the coming of this Assyrian invasion. And one of the prophecies is given to Isaiah is of his own son, Maher Shalah Hashbaz. It's a great name. It's a great Bible name. It's right up there with Jehoshaphat and Zerubbabel and Mephibosheth. I mean, can't you imagine calling the kids in? David, Becca, Sarah, Dan, Sam, Maher, Shala, Hashbaz, dinner. That gets awesome. Rachel, we need to talk. Anyways, Maher, Shala, Hashbaz says his son isn't going to be old enough to call your name before the Assyrians come down and overtake Israel. And so Isaiah is speaking about the fate of the northern kingdom, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, which are two of the tribes in the northern kingdom that make up this nation state of Israel. This is distinct from the southern kingdom, 
uh, of Judah. And he's saying they're already experiencing the oppression of an alien invader. The Assyrians are at the door. They haven't conquered yet, but they're going to overthrow this northern kingdom, and they're making their presence and their power felt. In this area, Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles. Isaiah is the only Old Testament writer to use this term, and it's very significant because it's going to come up again in the New Testament. And it's under the reign of these northern kings. You know, my old church in Alabama, they really appreciated that the northern kingdom was more sinful. Not sure why, but... But Baal worship was led by the kings and came to be practiced among the people in the northern kingdom. And Isaiah is announcing God's judgment through the Assyrian invaders because of the sin of idolatry in the northern kingdom. And so what the picture that he's trying to paint um, throughout the book, but particularly in this section, is a picture of darkness, not just because of oppression by this alien invader, but a darkness that's been brought about by sin. In other words, the misery that's being experienced by the northern kingdom is God's judgment on them for worshiping other gods. So their distress has been brought about by sin. The darkness of death which is upon them is in fact God's judgment for their idolatry. And there's no distress which is deeper than the misery that's brought upon us by sin. And Isaiah is giving a prophecy about this coming invasion and the fall of the northern kingdom, an event that hasn't happened yet. But he's also giving us a prophecy about the Lord's rescue and salvation of his people. And it's not a passage that at first glance you expect to have this foreshadowing uh, and prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, the New Testament tells us that's precisely what it does. We'll see that as we work through it today. Assyria will, over the next century, threaten the southern kingdom of Judah as well. But it's going to be another empire, the empire of Babylon, that's eventually going to come down and take Judah and ransack Jerusalem and destroy the Temple of Solomon and take into captivity uh, the young men of Judah and Jerusalem and all the pretty girls, because that's the way they did it. And uh, we have uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel from the book of Daniel. And so from 721 B.C., fall of the northern kingdom, to 586 B.C., fall of the southern kingdom, right through the Babylonian empire and the Babylonian invasion, the Babylonian exile for 70 years in the future, all of that is coming. It lies just ahead. The next 200 years is darkness. How'd you like to be that prophet? I mean, can you imagine that? We've just gone through a recession. They say we're coming out of it now. Maybe hard to tell. But imagine if they got on the news, you turned on the news, and Brian Williams said, look, we know we're in a recession. And it's probably going to turn into a full-blown economic, spiritual, and social depression. But good news. Things are going to turn around. Everything's going to be fine. In fact, it's going to be awesome in 2212. 2212? What are you kidding me? We'll be dead by then. Who's going to accept that as good news? I mean, if that happened, we'd all sink further into gloom and anguish. 
It's like a land that is always winter and there is no Christmas. It's a time of gloom, a time of despair. And into that despair and sorrow and darkness shines a light. A light that's going to grow and grow and grow until you flip the page from Malachi to Matthew and you see its glory shining in the face of Jesus. It's a fulfillment of a promise that God had spoken that he will save his people through a mediator, a savior, a seed born of a woman and made subject to the law. In the seventh chapter of Isaiah, which we read last Sunday, the promise of the seed uh, that would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then in the sixth chapter, the chapter before that, Isaiah, you remember, had a great vision of one who was high and lifted up and seated on a throne, who was holy, holy, holy. And both the prophet Isaiah and the apostle John will tell us this vision of the one who is high and lifted up is none other than a vision of Jesus Christ upon whose shoulders is the government of the universe. And slowly but surely, Isaiah is painting a picture for us in the midst of all this darkness, painting a picture up for us of Jesus, of Bethlehem, of Christmas. Now, Isaiah is ministering in Jerusalem, the capital city. He has access uh, to the temple courts, to the liturgy, has access to at least four of the reigning monarchs of his time. And the prophecy of Isaiah begins by describing how the people of God entered into outward rituals of worship, but their hearts were actually far from God. They went through the motions, but they didn't really know him. They're still in darkness. And it's real, overwhelming, engulfing darkness. It's a darkness that destroys, that chokes, that robs you of your breath. We read in here in Isaiah 9 of gloom, anguish, contempt. Verse 1, uh, verse 2, people who walked in darkness, who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. But you notice sort of hidden in there in the middle of all that is, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. It's the whole point. They may well be in darkness, but Isaiah is actually bringing a message of grace. Good news into the darkness, he's shining a light. Into this engulfing cloud, he talks of one in whose face will shine the very glory of God himself. They've seen a great light. He's speaking as a prophet, of course. They haven't seen the light yet. But the darkness is overwhelming and long-lasting. Isaiah 64, you can read that. Talks about, we're, we're believers, we're Israelites, but we act as unbelievers. There's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. The darkness is overwhelming and long-lasting. The people of God in the time of Isaiah are surrounded by darkness, and they allowed the darkness to fill their lives. And this went on for hundreds of years. God kept sending prophets. God kept calling the people back to himself. God kept saving a remnant of faithful people uh, for himself. He always has, and he always will. He kept telling them, the light is coming but if we really understand the scriptures, we see that the darkness of Isaiah's day, though it was different in form, it was one of uh, license and great evil. And it would change and become one of great legalism. But it's really not all that different from the darkness of Jesus' day. 
the darkness of Jesus' day. Now, if you had gone to Jerusalem in Jesus' time, we've now jumped 730 years. You would not draw the conclusion that the land was in darkness. They had the temple. All the outward rituals of worship are present. Um, they're going through the motions of worship. They have the sacrifices. They have the temple. They have all the festivals. But their hearts are still in the dark. They still don't know God. Their hearts can't listen to the notes of grace that echoed from the promise of the gospel. And we get a marvelous illustration of that in the Gospel of John. In Jesus' time, turn with me to John chapter 3. Now there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? See, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a teacher of Israel, a man who knows the scriptures back to front, a teacher of budding seminary students, if you will. Maybe not that. But he says, Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, unless a man is born from above, he cannot see, he cannot understand the kingdom of God. And you know what Nicodemus says? I don't understand. I don't understand what you're saying. He confirms the very thing that Jesus is telling him. And while Jesus does tell Nicodemus the very, uh, the, the best known verse in all of the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's the best known verse. We don't know any of the verses before or after it, but we know that one. But a few verses later, he tells him probably the least known verse, John 3, 19. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's so vital for us to understand. In the midst of Advent, people love to sing Christmas carols without knowing why Jesus had to come into the world. I mean, very often we'll hear somebody mention it in Sunday school uh, this morning, that Jesus is the reason for the season. And that's a cliche, but it is true. But we have to ask the question before we ask who the reason for the season is, we have to ask the question, what's the reason for the reason? It's not just that Jesus is the reason we celebrate Advent. There's a reason why Jesus had to come into the world, and the reason is the darkness of sin 
and the misery that comes with it. Now, the, Matthew beautifully shows how this passage points to exactly that truth. Turn with me to Matthew 4. Matthew tells us this passage is fulfilled over 700 years later when Jesus, having come out of the wilderness, who was tempting him in the wilderness? Satan, tempting Jesus, first verses of chapter 4. He comes into the city of Nazareth and he departs from it into Capernaum, where? In the Galilee of the Gentiles, into the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And he preaches the gospel. Listen, Matthew 4, starting at verse 12. I know it says 12 through 20, but it's really 12 through 17. I forgot to change that. It says, now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, a people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned our verse from Isaiah in Matthew. And then Matthew says, the very next verse, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so in the person and the preaching of Jesus in Galilee of the Gentiles, Matthew says that fulfills the passage that we have read today from Isaiah 9. The prophet Isaiah is telling us that light is in the distance that light is down through the corridors of the centuries that will follow. But as a prophet, he's speaking in faith and says, these people have seen a great light. And then Matthew and John tell us that light has come. And Matthew says, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the beloved disciple John writes directly to our hearts when Jesus spoke and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I wonder this morning, does that describe you? Is that your testimony? Is that a description of your life? You've come here this morning. Can you say in the very depths and recesses of your heart and your experience and your emotions, I've seen the light. I've seen the light that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. I've seen the light that glows with such glory that like Moses, you almost want to hide your face from it. Alls we have, in the beginning of John, the beginning of Matthew, and most of Isaiah is darkness. And then into that darkness is light. You know, sometimes when I come here very early in the morning, it's very rare now. But a long time ago, I used to come into this temporary sanctuary, and there's no windows. And it's very dark. And then someone turns on the lights, these lights, and you can see everything. And Isaiah is saying, God has put the light on so you can see your sin and you can see your Savior and your need of God's provision. Does your life demonstrate, does it show the difference of the light? Does it show the difference of the light? 
Isaiah writes later in Isaiah 6, The arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. That's the theme of this closing passage from Isaiah. It's about darkness and the power of darkness and darkness getting deeper and deeper. And then he sees light. Light begins to dawn, begins to shine brightly like the dawn of a new day. And at first he talks about this light as something objective, something out there. But then it becomes some subjective, something in here. It shines out of this people. It all sort of looks and feels like a beginning of creation. When God said, let there be light, and there was light. But it's a work of recreation now. It's something future. Something that's going to happen in Isaiah's future. And this light is the glory of God. In the Old Testament, the word glory carries the association of weight and worth and value and splendor, all of which are present when God reveals his glory. It's who he is. It's what he is. And God was answering Moses' prayer, you remember, to show him his glory. And what did God show him? A light, a Shekinah glory, a glory cloud. Hard to describe. Attractive and intimidating at the same time. It shows up at various times in redemptive history. And it represents the very presence of God. And then you turn to the pages of the New Testament and this presence of God, this glory, this representation of being and presence and dignity and splendor is made manifest in a baby lying in a manger in Bethlehem. John tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God is telling us that the whole course of our salvation, our entire future rests on a little baby, a little infant with head and arms and tiny feet and crying. Yes, I know one of our carols says no crying he makes, but I always had a problem with that. I think Jesus could cry without it being a sinful cry. But the whole course of our salvation rests in this tiny little infant. Why did King Herod, Herod the Great, engage in that uh, pogrom against Bethlehem, against all the little children? What's he so terrified about little children? Because Satan understood the significance of the coming of this child into the world. Because when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, there's an earthquake in the kingdom of Satan that spells his doom. That's what Isaiah is saying to the people of God. Everything looks bleak. Everything looks terrible. We have all this war and devastation. But look again, a light is shining, and that light will be deliverance. Deliverance from sin. Deliverance from the consequences of sin. Deliverance from hell. Deliverance from the wrath of God. Deliverance from the judgment to come. So we can stand on that day and be assured that our sins are forgiven and we have peace with God. That's the message of the light shining in the darkness. You know, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, few of you have read that. Four children enter into the magical land of Narnia through the back of a large wardrobe in this strange professor's home. And when they arrive, it's winter. And initially, they think it's great fun until they learn that in Narnia, it's been winter for a 100 years and no Christmas. And Narnia has fallen under the magic of the evil witch whose reign brings harsh winter conditions to this beautiful land. 
And early on in the story, the children meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. They're having a meal with them, tucked away in the Beaver's Lodge, and begin to discuss this endless winter. In the midst of their discussion, Mr. Beaver says the most preposterous thing. He says there's reason for hope. Good reason. Why? Because Aslan is on the move. Up to this point, the children don't know who Aslan is or why he should be the source of such hope in the middle of winter, but they see that the very thought of Aslan at work again in Narnia brings hope to the beavers and the other creatures who have not pledged allegiance to the evil witch. I think most of us here can understand the thought of a winter that never ends. At some point in our lives, things seem to crash around us. We can lose the most precious possession in the world, hope. It often seems that God is distant from our world. Things seem out of control. Bad things happen to good people. Evil seems to triumph. And sometimes life seems like an endless winter with no hope of Christmas ever coming. But no matter who you are or what the circumstances of your life are, you have reason for hope. Good reason. Because God is on the move. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. As we just heard a few minutes ago in our readings from the Scripture, 2,000 years ago, God broke through every barrier and sent a frail little boy, a little baby, to perform the important work of establishing his kingdom once and for all in the lives of mankind. But when he comes, it's much like Aslan's arrival in Narnia. It's nearly imperceptible to those living around him. They don't see it. They don't get it. Instead of heralding his arrival with loud trumpets down the center of Jerusalem, the Messiah is born in the humblest of ways to a young Jewish girl where the animals are kept, laid in a feeding trough with simple cloths wrapped around him. And the angels, when they're finally allowed the opportunity to show themselves, herald Jesus' birth to a handful of shepherds. The coming of Jesus was hardly noticed. And though that seems crazy to us, that's how God planned it. That's his plan. He came for simple and ordinary people not just for the great and mighty and powerful. He came into the world quietly, bringing the most precious of all commodities, hope. And hundreds of years before Jesus appeared, the prophet Isaiah looked in the future and spoke about the hope that he would bring into the world. He says, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness on them has a light shine. God was on the move 2,000 years ago. But the good news is that God is still on the move today. And although the circumstances of your life may seem like winter, there's reason for hope. God hasn't abandoned our world, and he definitely hasn't abandoned you. And he quietly comes to each one of us and offers hope. Hope that one day he'll come back and make all things right. Hope that you can be forgiven for your sins, no matter what they are. Hope that one day you can live forever with him, and hope that no matter how much winter your life feels like, there is a beautiful spring. Who's Isaiah speaking of? Could he be talking about the incarnation of Christ? Is that what Isaiah is seeing looking down those 700 plus years of history to the birth of a Savior in Bethlehem of Judea? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The words of John in the beginning of his gospel refer first to John the Baptist it says, there was a man sent from God, his name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. 
Jesus, the light of the world, and in him, men and women restored to the image of God, just as at creation when God said, let there be light. He recreates by his spirit, and he makes us in Christ to be partakers of the divine nature. So we read in 2 Corinthians 4, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This Advent, think about the darkness and the depths of your sin. And then think about the light and the depths of his grace. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for letting me get through this. Lord, we are people who are full of darkness and full of sin. And we say that we despair over the darkness that seems to surround us sometimes. But truth be told, we really love the darkness and we're afraid of the light. Because it reveals our sins and shortcomings and opens our eyes to the need for repentance and enables us to hear the gospel. Lord, Isaiah is telling us that we desperately need your grace. And Matthew and John are telling us where to find it in your son Jesus. Let us turn to him this morning. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you that the blood of Jesus covers our sins. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who is the light and who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.